Specialty Story, session number 193. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, where I get to have amazing conversations with physicians about their specialty. If you like these and you haven't checked out eshadowing.com yet, go check it out. It's a live shadowing session with a physician every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern time. This week, I have someone who is very interesting to talk to because at one point, I was diagnosed with MS. And at this point, we don't think it's MS. And I've, I've told my story before. If you haven't heard it, I, I gave a, a, a YouTube video about kind of the diagnosis that changed my path in medicine. Uh, you can go check that out on YouTube. But today I'm talking to Dr. Brandon Bieber. No relation to Justin at all, spelled differently. And Dr. Bieber is a community-based neurologist specializing in neuroimmunology, which we often think of as MS, uh, MS specialist. He works in Southern California at Kaiser, and we talk all about his journey to neurology, why he liked neuroimmunology, and so much more. We start the conversation to learn how Dr. Bieber first became interested in neurology. Well, I think I just tried to stay one step ahead. So you know, when I went to medical school, I just knew I wanted to be a doctor. I didn't have any idea what specialty I wanted to get into. And then in medical school around the third year, you know, when I did my rotation in neurology, I got interested in it. And then I didn't decide that I wanted to do MS or immunology until maybe the end of my second year of fellowship. And so, you know, to the young people out there, you don't have to plan your whole life out. You can just <laughs> sort of stay one step ahead, know what you want to do next. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I would say the first few years of medical school, I was just interested in neuroscience, just learning about it. And I think when I did my clinical rotations, I sort of liked the diagnostic challenge of neurology. I liked that there was a lot of innovation, a lot of improvement happening in the way we could take care of people. I kind of liked uh, doing an exam and actually finding abnormalities and sort of doing physical diagnosis, you know, seeing a patient and sort of listening to their history and doing an exam and coming up with a diagnosis. And then, you know, when I, I had no idea what subspecialty I wanted to go into when I was in residency and residency is very inpatient heavy. And so our experience is overwhelmingly with sort of emergency diseases like stroke and brain hemorrhages and, you know, spinal cord compression and epileptic status and things like that. And so you don't really get a lot of experience in diseases like multiple sclerosis, which is mostly an outpatient disease or with Parkinson's disease. So you don't necessarily get a ton of experience with that early on. But I was lucky enough to have a mentor. Her name is Dr. Annetta Langergold. She's kind of known in multiple sclerosis research. And she was very excited and passionate about MS. She was so knowledgeable. And, you know, I became interested in it and I started doing research with her. And then I got to shadow her in clinic. And that's how I got into it. And I think that one thing that differentiates different types of neurologists 
is some people have that cowboy mentality. You know, they're sort of almost like emergency medicine doctors. They like treating acute stroke and responding to, you know, to emergencies. Uh, but I'm not like that. You know, I prefer sort of having relationships with people over time, getting to know people. You know, I have some patients I've seen for 10 years and, you know, people who were teenagers and now they've blossomed into adults and just see the changes people have in their lives. Okay. I like to talk to people about their profession and their interests and things like that and just sort of helping people over time. So I like that MS is a chronic disease and that also the immunology behind it is so interesting and there's so many new things coming out all the time. And I, even in my career, you know, things have changed so much, you know, we're really able to stop a large number of relapses and new lesions with MS and people are much more stable and we're really able to keep a lot of people out of the hospital and be higher functioning, you know, going on to more advanced ages. And so it's amazing to see. It's a lot of hard work, but it's been very rewarding for me. Yeah, that's awesome. What are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions around the, the MS field that you're dealing with day in and day out, likely from neurology residents? Well, I think that, um, you know, in general, people tend to think of neurology as a field that's more diagnosis based and less treatment based. And certainly, historically, that was true. I mean, we didn't have any FDA-approved treatments for multiple sclerosis until 1993, beta-seron, and those drugs weren't all that effective. And so, historically, there was sort of less we could do for people. Uh, but now, you know, we really do make a big difference. So that's kind of a, just a general misconception about neurology. Certainly, there are neurological diseases where our treatment is less effective. And, and certainly, there are people with MS where our treatment is less effective. It's not like we're very effective at treating every single person. Um, you know, and so that's probably the number one misconception. Yeah. Are there any traits out there that you think make someone be a good MS specialist? I think MS is very academic, so I think you would have to be someone who's really interested in research and sort of good at interpreting clinical trials, who has sort of knowledge of clinical trials methodology and statistics and that sort of thing. You know, MS is very academic. Um, I'm kind of the exception to that. You know, I'm working in, I work for Kaiser Permanente Southern California. I'm, I'm entirely a clinician. I have done some research like epidemiologic research and participated in clinical trials, but I'm not really doing that right now. But I still think you need a little bit of an academic mind. I think that you have to uh, be very patient with people. You know, people with MS have a lot of problems. You have to really be willing to listen to people and have good interpersonal skills. And you have to be willing to do a lot of dirty work. Like a lot of what I do is answering emails and following up on labs and MRIs. You have to be doing, willing to do a lot of work that's sort of slow paced over a period of time to help people. Yeah, that's awesome. <clears throat> um, when it comes to to your process of how you got to MS, uh, as you were a neurology resident, you're being exposed to all these subspecialties. Were there any other subspecialties that were really close to being the one that you wanted to match in? Well, I didn't seriously consider anything after the end of my second year. Mm -hmm. I knew for sure I didn't want to do the inpatient type specialties like stroke or neurocritical care. Uh, but, you know, I would I was interested in neuro ophthalmology, uh, maybe neuro oncology or movement disorders. 
Um, I actually happen to do Botox, so you know, which is kind of like a movement disorder specialty type of thing. I just someone trained me in residency, and I sort of stuck with that. You know, when you do a certain specialty in neurology, very few people, unless you're an academician, you know, seeing patients one day a week, do only that subspecialty. I do, you know, a decent amount of general neurology. I do Botox. I actually used to do like telestroke, like managing stroke patients remotely. And I quit in 2020 just because, you know, I had too much going on. But, you know, those are sort of the things I would have considered the outpatient neurology specialties. Yeah. Interesting. So what does a typical day look like for you? So, you know, I'm, most of my work is in the clinic. And so I work maybe something like 8 to 5.30 or 6 on a typical day. And I'm on call uh, maybe once every seven weeks. And we're on call a week at a time. And basically what that means is we do our regular clinic during the day, but uh, we kind of field phone calls in the evenings. And over the weekend, we go into round in the hospital. And then occasionally we have to cover for an entire week uh, because the neuro hospitalist is out. But during a typical day, you know, I kind of get in early. I start reviewing the charts of my patients that I'm going to see, you know, kind of review their history and their MRI scans and everything like that. And then, you know, it, when I have time during the day, I'm sort of answering patient messages. I'm getting paged from infusion centers because a lot of my patients uh, are, receive medications and there's some coordination and care involved. And then, you know, I have a little lunch break and I'll sort of eat lunch while charting. And uh, then I'll, you know, do the same thing in the afternoon. That's kind of a typical day for me. Yeah. For the the patients who really like the, the Sherlock Holmes part of being a doctor, really figuring out what's going on, for your MS patients, how many of them are coming in with just weird symptoms and you're getting to the diagnosis of MS uh, versus how many are coming in with a diagnosis from their primary care doc? Well, I, I, a lot of the people I see are already diagnosed. Uh, so probably I can't give you a number, but maybe, you know, 75% already have a diagnosis. One thing about MS is that it's very commonly misdiagnosed. Mm -hmm. There was a study done at Cedar sinai in UCLA in Los Angeles, where they sort of looked at every single patient with a diagnosis of MS, and they found that 18% were actually misdiagnosed. And so one sort of clinical tip to anyone in any specialty is, never 100% accept the diagnosis from another provider, even if it's someone who is experienced and well-qualified, because it's just easy to make mistakes. You know, the field of MS isn't just MS. It's really like neuroimmunology. Mm -hmm. And of course, the most common such disease in the United States is multiple sclerosis. About one in 350 people have it, you know, but we see people who have just optic neuritis or just transverse myelitis or neuromyelitis optica or neurological manifestations of other rheumatologic diseases like sarcoidosis and Sjogren's syndrome. So, you know, we do see like a different, a different, you know, kind of a diverse collection of patients. It's just that the most common is MS. Interesting. What is, what is a misdiagnosis in the field? Is it, is it someone with eventually someone being diagnosed with MS who's not being diagnosed with MS or someone diagnosed with MS who doesn't have MS? Well, both definitely happen. So I saw a patient this morning who uh, last year, she had an episode of numbness from the waist down and she saw a doctor, but by the time she saw the doctor, her symptoms had resolved and they examined her and it was normal. And so they kind of reassured her. 
And then this year, she had an episode of double vision and imbalance. And sure enough, she ends up having multiple sclerosis. And so that's very, very common, you know, uh, relapsing multiple sclerosis, the symptoms often go away. And so, you know, patients are kind of falsely reassured. And of course, the other thing that happens is, you know, is what I was referring to, which is sort of overdiagnosis. And sometimes the patient has another neurological disease, like another autoimmune disease of the nervous system. You know, sometimes it's something else entirely, like it's a stroke, for instance. Or sometimes, you know, people just get carried away. A lot of people can have white matter lesions on MRI scan that are benign and not really caused by a specific neurological disease. So that can cause a lot of confusion too. So we see it both ways. Yeah. And I'm one, I've shared my story openly before, and I was telling you before, I have a diagnosis of MS in my, in my chart from, from several years ago. But at this point, after lots of MRI follow-ups, after just my, my clinical presentation, I'm not progressing like like an MS patient typically would. I'm not on medications. Uh, and so we think just a, a transverse myelitis uh, happened in my my past that that was misdiagnosed at one point as MS. So uh, which is good for me. I'll, I'll take it. Yes, definitely good for you. <laughs> Glad uh, to hear you're doing well. Yeah, I, I will take that. Um, so you, you talked about Botox. Now, that's obviously a procedure that you're doing for patients. Are there any other procedures that, that you can do as a, as a neuroimmunologist? Well, uh, the, only, the only thing I guess specific to neuroimmunology would be like a spinal tap, but any neurologist can do that. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I do some other little procedures like occipital nerve blocks or trigger point injections just for other diseases. But the, probably the most common thing I personally do is Botox. Yeah. And, and we do do Botox for like spasticity and MS. So there are some other MS doctors who do that. Worth learning, I think, if you're in the field. Yeah. So being part of a a big medical system like Kaiser, what does call look like for you? Uh, Well, so like I said, it's where I am, which is Downey, Southern California, Kaiser Permanente and Downey, which is sort of South Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. Uh, We we have a neurohospitalist. And so normally we're not covering the hospital during the week, but we're on call just once a week. And we don't have a residency program. So we're fielding the pages ourselves. And obviously, you know, no one can work a week straight without sleep. But, you know, generally speaking, during the week, you know, you're just fielding phone calls and I'll sort of get a phone call. Sometimes I'll log on to review a film remotely. But usually I don't have to go into the hospital on a typical random night. And during the weekend, you know, I do have to go in the hospital. But it's usually for a limited amount of time because we're not the you know, the primary team, you know, the internists are sort of the primary team. So we're not getting paged at everything. So usually we don't have to go in like that long. I Where we did a totally different call system where we would just be on call for a single night or a single weekend periodically. And then, you know, if you were on call, the work would be harder, but then we did have residents to sort of back us up. And, you know, it wasn't as often because there are more people there. So I wouldn't say there's like one particular call schedule typical of this field. And there are definitely some neurologists out there in this field who don't take call, you know, because it's like an outpatient specialty. Uh, Though I heard if you're in private practice, you know, to kind of build up your practice, you may have to do some hospital work realistically. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Do you you feel like you have enough time for life outside of the clinic and, and seeing patients? I think so. You know, definitely any field in medicine is hard work. Uh, Don't go into it if you want to work 20 hours a week. But, you know, I think I've been able to to exercise and stay in shape. You know, I have 
hobbies like writing and, uh, you know, various things. I have two young children and everything. So I think that if you balance life, it works out pretty well. I haven't had to give up too much uh, in my personal life. Yeah. One of the notorious things with neurologists is really long notes. Have Have you been able to to buck that trend and, and write shorter notes so that you can get more done? Well, my notes are pretty long, but you know, <laughs> I use templates and I try, I try to keep it brief and efficient, but yeah, my notes are probably longer than most doctors for sure. Yeah. That's funny. Um, so what is, what does the training path look like to become a, a neuroimmunologist? Well, so basically you got to do four years of medical school. Uh, you do one year of internal medicine internship and then three years of neurology residency. And then you do a fellowship in, you know, multiple sclerosis immunology and fellowships are usually one or two years. If you want to be more of a clinician like me, you typically do one year. If you want to go into academics, you typically do two years. I actually was supposed to do two years but my organization desperately needed someone. And so I ended up quitting after a year and a half to be hired by the same organization. Uh, so uh, right now, multiple sclerosis is actually not an ACGME accredited fellowship. Yeah. You know, so if you want to be a stroke specialist, you want to be a multiple, uh, if you want to be like a neurocritical care specialist, you've got to actually take like a board exam to be certified in that. All I have is a certificate because there is no board in multiple sclerosis. Interesting. Uh, to anyone who's watching this, you know, by the time you get there, it may be a little bit different. I'll probably be grandfathered in, but you ha may have to take a separate test. <laughs> I'm sure someone out there is figuring out how to charge people to take a test. So it'll, right. it'll happen. Work, yeah, we're going to charge you $2,000 to take a multiple choice test, but I'm not going to take it because I'm <laughs> grandfathered in. You, you got lucky. You came in right under the deadline there. That's, right, uh, yeah. that's interesting. And so something just, just to point out that you mentioned, neurology seems to be one of the, um, the few remaining specialties that still has a prelim year that you have to apply to separately. So if you want to go into neurology, you're applying to two residency programs at the same time, which uh, can be a little bit stressful, both uh, a, an internal medicine year, prelim year, and then the, the neurology program as well. Yeah, the one that I did, they actually had it where it was sort of categorical, where you oh, automatically nice. got the internship. But that is true. When I applied, I had to like apply separately for internal medicine. And I remember at one program, I think it was UC Davis, they didn't give me an interview for internal medicine. And so I went there, you know, knowing I'm probably not going to take this position since I don't have the the internship there. Yeah. And I told them that and they like on the day of the interview arranged for me to get the interview with internal medicine. Uh, <laughs> but that does sometimes happen where someone goes to a separate city to do internal medicine and then does yeah. their neurology residency. You know, yeah. there's no guarantees. Yeah, that's that's what my wife did. She she matched prelim at Brown uh, internal medicine and then neurology at, at Mass General. So. Um, and, and luckily it's same, same kind of area and we, we were able to live in one place and travel to both. So that, that worked. So for a student going through this or even a resident who's looking at going into, uh, a neuroimmunology MS fellowship, what do they need to be doing to, to be competitive for some of the more competitive programs? Well, I think that you want to do some research. Like I said, it's an academic field. Mm -hmm. I did a decent amount of epidemiologic research, and I was able to get involved in that early. Uh, you know, if you can present at conferences, even if it's a, just a case report, you know, anything helps. It's a very small field, 
uh, at the time that I went to it, we did not go through the, I'm blanking on the name of the program, like the match, the formal match. The heiress um, match? Yeah, it was not in within that. Yeah. So it's kind of like a traditional job search. You just call or email people and they give you an interview and you know that kind of thing. It was very informal. It's a very small field. And so a lot of positions are obtained just by sort of word of mouth. You know, you meet someone at a conference, you impress them. And so I think, you know, being being social with people at conferences and meeting people and collaborating pe with people in research could help. It's not generally speaking like a super competitive you know, fellowship as far as I know. I mean, that could be changing. Yeah. But I remember at the time there weren't a lot of people who are interested in it. it. These days, it tends to be pretty female dominated, like I'm kind of the exception. For whatever reason, you know, not a lot of men want to go into this field, although, you know, I think it's a great field for anyone. Yeah. In terms of patience, I'll just, I'll, I'll piggyback on that. In terms of patience, I think historically, MS is more known as a female dominated disease. Is that potentially why we see more females? Or is that thinking kind of out the window these days? No, I think so. I mean, still about 75% of people with MS are women, you know, so just like gynecology, I think that attracts, you know, more female doctors. That's not really why I went into it, but that may be part of the reason. Yeah. Interesting. For the future primary care docs listening to this, what do you wish they knew about what you're doing day in and day out to maybe help their patients get a, an earlier diagnosis, start treatment earlier, just to help you do your job? Well, yeah, it's difficult for them. Um, and certainly, I, you know, the patient I mentioned earlier, I wasn't trying to, you know, insinuate that they didn't do a good job because lots of people have numbness and tingling that's benign. Uh, but you sort of have to recognize that like clinical histories that are a little bit more suspicious. You know, like if you have tingling in the hand with activity, you know, that could easily be carpal tunnel syndrome or something else benign or some peripheral nerve syndrome. But if you have like numbness in the trunk, for example, like numbness from the waist down, you know, that's a little bit more suspicious and you have to sort of cue in onto that sort of history. So you just have to sort of be familiar with the clinical histories that are more suspicious for MS. And, you know, every primary care doctor should be able to do a basic neurological exam. And, you know, you'll pick up things like someone has brisk reflexes or Babinski sign. These are signs of injury to the spinal cord. And if you're really astute and careful, you can pick up on these things. Yeah. I, I had, when, when I was going through some of my symptoms, my, my wife being a neurologist did the, uh, the, the pinprick on my, on my fingers. And I had the very classic, like delayed hyper, uh, hypersensitive reaction to, to one of my fingers. So it's, one of my fingers is, is affected by where my, my lesions are. And it was just like, super textbook and both of us were cracking up even though it, it hurt my finger at the time but it, it was like super textbook of like oh that's that's what that feels like <laughs> it was weird but uh, the the potential issue at the end of the day is mris are expensive right and and it seems to be like an mri is the definitive diagnosis potentially uh, for MS, or at least for, for finding these lesions. Is there, is there any other easier potential way to cue into what may be going on? Well, you know, that is the best diagnostic test for, yeah. you know, detect, detecting MS. Um, in terms of like how to solve the problem, I guess, from like an economic perspective of people ordering two MRIs, you know, I think it's reasonable to just use your best judgment. I mean, if the history really sounds just like with headaches, you know, if you think the headaches are migraines, 
then don't order an MRI. And if you think something else could be going on, you know, if you think there's a 10, 20% chance, you probably should order the MRI, I think. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. I'm probably costing Medicare a lot of money, <laughs> so, but I do my best. Yeah. It's, uh, we, we need, we need better technology to get a- MRIs cheaper and, uh, and faster. It's amazing how fast CT scans work and MRIs are just chugging along there. Um, as a MS kind of neuroimmunologist specialist, are there any other specialties that you're working closely with, right? For example, um, uh, movement disorder specialists are, are working with the neurosurgeons doing um, kind of DBS implants and stuff like that. Is there any other specialty that you're working closely with? Well, so sometimes people have autoimmune diseases with neurological manifestations like Bechet's disease or Sjogren's syndrome. Mm-hmm. So sometimes we work with the rheumatologists a little bit, you know, because they may be getting medications from one of us that are sort of treating both conditions. Yeah. Um, to give an example, for someone with rheumatoid arthritis and multiple sclerosis, the class of drugs TNF-alpha inhibitors, such as Humira, can actually make multiple sclerosis worse. You know, so I tell the rheumatologists, don't give them that class of medications, basically. Good advice for you, too, by the way. <laughs> uh, you know, don't take those medications ever in your life. Uh, but, you know, and then the, probably the other thing would be like radiologists. And so when you're an MS doctor, whenever there's sort of like a mysterious condition with a weird looking lesion in the nervous system on MRI, we sort of become the doctors of choice, even though it may not actually be, you know, immunological, like it could be uh, something rare, such as like an adult onset leukodystrophy, but we sort of end up getting those consults. And so, you know, kind of working with like a good neuroradiologist, I would say those are the top two specialties. Nice. What do you know now that you wish you knew before going into MS and neuroimmunology? Um, Probably I would have liked to know more about sort of everything that's going on on social media and communicating with other people. Uh, Like, you know, I learned a ton just from the multiple sclerosis blogger, Gavin Giovanoni, who has a really good MS research blog. And, you know, regardless of what specialty you're in, you don't have to get all of your information from your mentors. You know, you can learn a lot online these days. Just follow people on Twitter who are experts on the field and it will really help you keep up with the research. And I wish I knew a little bit more about interpreting clinical research because that's, you know, something I feel like we weren't taught very well in medical school and I sort of learned it during residency. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of good info out there that we we don't have time for in medical school unfortunately. What do you like the most about being a neuroimmunologist? Well, like I said before, I think it's just, you know, having uh, patients that I follow over a long period of time. I mean, some of my patients I've got to know really well and just sort of having conversations with them and just, uh, you know, getting to know them over the years. That's probably the number one thing. And of course, you know, the great thing about MS is that particularly people with relapsing MS, a lot of them get better. And so, you know, I have patients, they were in a wheelchair and then, you know, they were treated and now they're walking and doing great. So it's really great to see people improve. Yeah. What do you like the least besides charting? (laughs) Well, that's what I was going to answer. Not necessarily (laughs) charting, but, you know, like I said, people with MS, they have issues. You know, a lot of people have pain and and other nagging symptoms. And so part of my job is fielding a lot of emails and, you know, just dealing with problems as they come up. One of my old mentors used to joke that general neurologists would prescribe the medication Copaxone for multiple sclerosis just because you don't really have to do anything. You don't have to check labs or anything like that. 
with sort of modern treatment of MS, you know, we're using a lot of these infusion therapies. And so, you know, you have to coordinate with the infusion center. You have to check the safety labs. There's just a lot to do to make the treatment work. Of course, it does create better outcomes, but it is a lot of work. Yeah. So let's let's talk about what's to come in this field. Now, there's a lot of hope, uh, potentially false hope, for stem cell therapy in all of medicine. And I see it a bunch in the MS world where patients are traveling to other countries where there's a little bit less regulation for stem cell injections in the spinal cord, let's say, um, to help treat some of these demyelinating lesions. Do you think, do you think uh, stem cells will be a, a boon for MS patients or is there anything else on the horizon potentially that's gonna change this field? Well, so there are two things. So one type of stem cell therapy for MS is hematopoietic stem cell transplant. And this is a proven treatment in relapsing MS that's been used for over 40 years. Uh, but this is a treatment where chemotherapy is given to sort of wipe out the immune system. And the transplant is sort of to reboot the immune system. Yeah. And it, it can be very effective and even create a long-term remission. This is the treatment that Selma Blair had, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, and some people have like a spectacular response to it and, and an indefinite remission. Although for that treatment, the effective part of the treatment is really the chemotherapy, not the stem cells. The stem cells are really just to prevent complications. So, so that treatment definitely can work. It has, has its risks, but it can definitely work. Now, what you're talking about is using stem cells to sort of regenerate the nervous system. Yeah. And, and you're certainly right. There have been a lot of disappointed people who have sort of been victims of this medical tourism. There is some research on this. Um, one person who does it is, is Dr. Sadiq at the Tisch MS Center in New York. And he published a sort of like an unrandomized trial, you know, showing that it could be beneficial. There's a, a center in Israel called Hadassah that has done this. And so there's some preliminary data. I, I can't say right now whether it works or not. You know, it still needs further research. Yeah, interesting. Hopefully, I, I, want, I want it to work. Uh, that'd be exciting. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be a neuroimmunologist? I definitely would. I mean, it's hard to know what the other possibilities could have been, but I'm happy. You know, I know the surveys say 60% of neurologists are burned out, but I'm not burned out yet. You know, I'm a young doctor, but I'm, I'm happy with my career. Any last words of wisdom for the student listening to this, thinking about going into neuroimmunology? Well, I would say uh, try to, you know, get a good mentor and see if you could do a little bit of research early on, because if you're interested in the science of it, it will probably keep you excited about it for years to come. And, you know, like I said, you only have to stay one step ahead. And so, you know, if you're a medical student, just figure out, do you want to go to medical school? And if you're, a, excuse me, do you want to go to neurology residency? You don't have to plan your whole life. All right. There you have it again, Dr. Brandon Bieber neurologist, neuroimmunologist specializing in MS and other, other diseases that afflict patients. I hope this was helpful for you. It was great for me to talk to Dr. Bieber. I, like, I, I liked the conversation because it was just really interesting. There's a lot that happens around MS. He talked about misdiagnosing, both overdiagnosing and underdiagnosing, and that's kind of what happened to me, although it didn't really affect me. Um, it, it, I think it would have hurt my 
my Air Force career either way with a diagnosis of transverse myelitis versus MS. I'm, I'm not really sure, but it is what it is. But it was a great conversation, and I hope you got a lot out of it. We have more great guests coming up here on Specialty Stories, so don't forget to subscribe to make sure that you get every episode for free every single week. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. Specialty Stories. 